Hello, hello. Hello out there and welcome again to another episode of The Cotton Companion, our bi-weekly-ish conversation between the editors and friends of Cotton Grower Magazine. We are off and running into September, and uh, we know it's here because the smell of defoliation is in the air. We got doves being bacon-wrapped and put on the grill, and of course, football season is back. Uh, In fact, my Rebels won on opening weekend uh, about a week ago. My partner, Jim Stebman's Vols, won as well. So all is right with the world and peaceful here in the cotton grower offices. Isn't that right, Jim? That's absolutely correct, Beck. It's great to have the season back, and we're hoping, the two of us are definitely hoping, that it will continue to be a peaceful season here in the office. Well, we don't play each other this year, so we are we, we have a, at least a course for smooth sailing. Um in fact, it was a big weekend for all of our Cotton Belt universities on opening weekend. The Red Raiders won out there in Lubbock. Um, A&M, the Aggies won. A&M had a big win on opening weekend. The MSU Bulldogs won. The Bulldogs of Georgia won. Auburn, Alabama, Arkansas, NC State, pretty much all of the Ag Cotton Belt schools that I encounter in my travels across the cotton belt all of you have won so let's all give ourselves a pat on the back and hope it keeps going that's right exactly exactly so uh we don't want to dive too deep into the college football thing we are not a college football podcast unfortunately we are we do want to dive into our packed cotton show today though we're going to lead off like always with jim leading a brief discussion Mm -hmm of the major news items of the day, and then we're going to bring you a brief interview uh, with one of our market's most trusted economists to talk about when, if ever, we're going to break out of this lagging price cycle. We had the USDA... The World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates Report, or the WASD report. There you go. I'm glad glad you had that memorized, (laughs) Jim, because I was about to butcher it. So... As you can see, we got a great show lined up for you today, a great pod, and uh, we thank you, as always, for joining us. If you'll stick with us, we'll be right back following this quick break. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Well, we're back. Uh, This is Jim Stedman. I'm the the online and field editor for Cotton Grower. Uh, Beck and I make up the uh, the editorial team here. it's uh, looking at the, at the news items in the industry for the last uh, last week or so. Things have been relatively quiet. Uh, we've looked at crop progress reports out of USDA. We look at those on a weekly basis. Uh, can't say that there's been a whole lot of change in the crop conditions um, or things like that. Uh, overall, the crop condition is still uh, holding pretty steady. At uh, I think the last last rating we saw. 
was 35% rated fair, 53% rated good to excellent, but we also started seeing a slight bump in acres rated poor as some of the uh, hotter, drier conditions that we've been dealing with in the cotton belt uh, have continued over the last couple weeks. And now that growers are moving into, uh, into defoliation and harvest in some parts of the belt, um, that could be a factor as, as we get into, uh, as we get into the, the coming weeks. We'll keep an eye on that number for you. Uh, it's been an interesting day in, in the cotton market and actually, in, I would say, in, in the chemical market. Um, on September 10th, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, vacated the EPA approval of the pesticide sulfoxaphor, uh, stating that basically the agency made a mistake by granting the registration without additional studies regarding potential impact of the, of the chemical on honeybees. Uh, now, sulfoxaflor, uh is developed, it's manufactured by Dow Agri-Sciences. Uh, most of you in the cotton market will know it by the trade name Transform, which has turned into a fairly significant uh, plant bug product. Now this ruling uh, is a result of a lawsuit filed back in 2013 when the product was registered. Uh, it was filed against EPA by several organizations on behalf of beekeepers and, uh, and parts of the honey industry. Uh, EPA initially proposed, as from what we can tell from media reports today, initially proposed to conditionally register the product uh, and request more studies to address concerns uh, about the uh, pesticides effect on bees. Uh, they changed course uh, about a month later uh, and went ahead and registered the product with certain restrictions and rate changes in place but without obtaining any further studies. So the product registration basically has now been handed back to EPA to obtain further studies on the effects of, uh, of sulfoxaflor on bees. It's, it's kind of interesting. I talked to some, uh, to some folks at the National Cotton Council this morning, and they've been monitoring this situation for the last, last couple of weeks with sort of a, a general feeling that this may be the direction we're heading at this point. Uh, so I don't think it comes as a, as a major surprise to a lot of folks, uh, or at least to some folks in the industry. Uh, I think they are, uh, the word I'm getting from them is they're committed to help EPA and help Dow uh, try to figure out where those gaps are in the, uh, in the product submission and, uh, and help them in any way they can to help fill, provide the information that's needed. Uh, Dow has also stepped up. They issued a statement, as you would expect, uh, expressing uh, you know, disagreement with the conclusion, respectful disagreement. Uh, that they will work with EPA to implement the order and, uh, and work to provide additional regulatory work. So uh, it's something to, uh, to sit back and watch. It seems like a, a victory at this point for the uh, folks who seem to believe that, uh, seem to think that pesticides are the primary cause of, uh, of bee deaths in the country. Um, so I don't know where this one's going to go. Uh, it's going to be interesting to kind of sit back and see. It is. You know, Jim, we, this is, you know, a, a topic that we have covered extensively on this podcast in the past um, because this is kind of low-key, this issue of pollinators and uh, crop protection products that are used in cotton has kind of been bubbling, and I mean, it's something that we've been watching. The council has a full-time position that monitors this very topic, 
Um, you know, so that ought to tell you enough about it right there that the council has someone devoted to this, to this issue. Um, and it seems like it wasn't that long ago, the last time we reported on this, the White House had come out with their long-awaited uh, pollinator, gosh, I forgot the official title of the paper, but uh, their their uh, statement about what should be done about pollinators and, and had a lot of uh, great things, as I recall, reporting on, reporting on it. It was basically considered a win for the cotton industry. The White House had a lot of very well-reasoned ideas about how to go about solving this topic, one of which was opening up a lot of federal lands to commercial bee uh, uh, professionals who, who are trying to nurture these hives and use them commercially. You know, one of the things that came out in our first reporting about this topic is that the reason that farms are even in this conversation at all is a total uh, no good deed goes unpunished situation. I mean, in places like Georgia and the Missouri Boot Hill and really across the Cotton Belt, beekeepers, uh, when, when these first started being commercialized, were approaching farmers and saying, hey, you've got all this acreage out there, I've got these bees and I need to give them some room to forage. Would you mind if I just posted these uh, colonies on your uh, farm? And it was no skin off a lot of these farmers' backs. They said, fine, you know, uh, I don't know that even money was exchanged in a lot of these uh, uh, deals, for lack of a better term. I mean, they just said, sure, keep your bee colony on my land. You're not bothering me. And, uh, of course, you get a few years down the road. You start, uh, it was around 05, 06, this colony collapse disorder first started making headlines. People started looking more closely at it. And the first thing they cast a wary eye to as to a cause for these problems with bee populations was these self-same farmers who were just trying to do beekeepers a favor in the first place by letting them be out on the farm. And now here we are. Again, the president and the White House had just come out with this statement that was very even keeled. You know, everybody was holding their breath. There was a concern that uh, the government was going to go after neonicotinoids here in the states the way that the governments of Europe had done the same. Uh, and that didn't wind up happening. You kind of breathed a sigh of relief for cotton producers in this country. And now here we are two, three months down the road in this circuit court, I believe you said was in San Francisco. San Francisco, that's right. Put the kibosh on this, uh, on Transform, which we know is so important to so many of our growers out there. I mean, where I'm from in the Mississippi Delta, where acreage can can slip uh, from year to year into a lot of corn acreage, this corn starts drying down and plant bugs can just wreak absolute havoc down there. I mean, gosh, I hope I get the year right. It seems like uh, 2009, 2009, 2010, um, these growers in Arkansas were spending north of like $65, $70 an acre just on plant bugs. And so Transform was one of these products that was helping to control that, to bring those costs down, it was very uh, effective, and here we are, um, you know, having to reel that back in. So it's frustrating. It's hard for us to keep our partial, you know, be partial here and and not come down on uh, angry at the EPA. But I mean, my goodness, when when are we going to get out of the weeds here uh, with this topic of pollinators? So. Anyhow, I don't want to ramble any longer, Jim. Go ahead with your <laughs> news roundup. Well, I, th I think the safe thing to say on this is there's more to the story to be told. Uh, you know, we'll see what what happens the, through potential appeals. We'll see what happens. You know, what ha with uh, between the EPA and between Dow AgriSciences and other other organizations that uh, that will step up and and try to to fill these gaps again. 
in that. Once those gaps are filled, um, if, there's, if they're filled to the satisfaction of, uh, of EPA and, and to, uh, to the courts, uh, we may see the product back on the market again. But I think right now it's, you know, we just sort of sit back and wait. Uh, one of the other items that has, that's gotten quite a bit of attention this week uh, has been the, the prediction by, by climate prediction forecasters for a very, very strong El Nino event this year. Apparently it's already developing out over the Pacific uh, and it's, it's basically going to favor some pretty substantial late fall and winter rains for large parts of the U.S., including many states in the Cotton Belt. Uh, according to the prediction models, it's going to, uh, this current El Nino is going to continue to strengthen through the rest of the year, uh, peaking sometime between October of this year and January of 2016. Uh, they're basically saying this could be among the top four strongest El Ninos on record. Uh, it's certainly expected to be the strongest since 97-98. Uh, has the potential and energy, they say, to be even stronger. Uh, as, we, as we all know, uh, it has already, in its development stages, was one of the driving forces behind all of the rain in Texas early this spring. Uh, the whole pat weather pattern that was set up uh, basically created a wetter-than-average wetter spring and summer for most of the Southwest. Uh, obviously, you look at something like this, and, and the folks in California are watching it with a very close eye, keeping their fingers crossed that maybe uh, if this comes through, uh, that it'll do something to, uh, to help impact their water and drought situation. Uh, one of the things that the, uh, the forecasters say, though, even though it has the potential for, to, be, uh, to be a record breaker, um, not every geographical region is going to be affected, uh, that will be affected, it's, it's not going to live up to its full potential. Um, so he said they're basically, they're, they're cautioning folks, you know, just kind of dampening the enthusiasm at this point, uh, saying, you know, for, for people who are counting on drought relief, uh, particularly in California over the winter, not to depend on it happening. That doesn't mean you won't get some relief, but probably not the, the type of relief that you're needing for, uh, you know, to, to stop the drought situations there. So basically over the next, uh, over the next winter, over the fall and winter months, they're, uh, they're basically looking for wetter conditions for the southern half of the U.S., stretching all the way from California to the Carolinas and up the East Coast. So uh, some of the folks in the southeast I know are already talking about uh, getting ready for a, uh, a cooler, wetter winter. Uh, so we'll just see how that plays out. Uh, you know, weather always, uh, I think growers always have their eye on the weather. As, no as we're looking at this, and particularly with some of the problems we've had over the last few years with drought and, uh, and other water situations, uh, any promise of rain and, uh, and a lot of rain uh, is always a welcome, welcome yeah. subject. No doubt it's welcome news, especially for our grower <clears throat> friends out there in California. It's been no, no, relief, uh, no relief in sight for so long, so we, Abs we hope it works out. Absolutely. And one last item, just, uh, just on the you know, to uh, sort of a, you know, shine a spotlight on the relationship between industry and, uh, and, and universities. Uh, Bear Crop Science opened its, uh, its Seeds Innovation Center on the campus of Texas Tech University in Lubbock uh, back in early September. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a $16 million, 100,000 square foot complex. Uh, it's going to house Bayer's global cotton business operations. 
there are also some state-of-the-art laboratories and research facilities, uh, including a 50,000-square-foot greenhouse. Uh, they're basically going to use it, the facility to boost seed research and innovation for cotton, but also for soybeans and wheat. Uh, there'll be about 50,000 square feet of office space with about 100 employees. Um, the center will support research and innovation efforts uh, for breeding, trait development, and quality uh, for health safety and environmental testing. So a lot of the, uh, of the varieties that, uh, that growers will be seeing over the next few years uh, from Bayer, uh, the folks with the Stoneville and Fibermax seed brands. Uh, well, some of the work, uh, a lot of the work, in fact, on development will be coming through this facility out in Lubbock. Uh, it's, a, it's a really kind of a continuation of a joint program or, uh, or cooperative efforts between Texas Tech and Bayer. And, uh, and I think it's a, it's a great facility. It looks, uh, the, the photos look uh, astounding. Does uh, it look as cool as the pyramid that our <laughs> bear cotton buddies are moving out of, though? Or at least as distinctive, I should say. Uh, no, actually, I think it's going to be much nicer than the, uh, than the pyramid there on the south loop of, of Lubbock. Uh, it, will, it, it blends right in with the Texas Tech, uh, Texas Tech motif and, and architectural styles. Very with cool. the uh, with the stone and the and the tile roof, so it's a it's a great looking build it, building based on the pictures I've seen, uh, and I'm sure they'll be doing great work out of there. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll be in there before too. I'm long. sure we will be there sooner than than we expect. Yeah. Well, Jim, uh, if that's all you got for us, we sure appreciate it. I would do want to pump the brakes on our conversation right there, and when we come back, we're going to be talking with uh, Don Shirley, and uh, he's going to give us his take on the USD numbers, USDA numbers rather, that came out today. So we are looking forward to hear, hearing from him. Stick with us, and we will be right back.
Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed.
All right. It's always great to hear from Dr. Don Shirley over there in Georgia. We certainly appreciate him. And uh, that'll just about do it for this installment of the Cotton Companion podcast. We want to, again, thank you sincerely for joining us. Um, If you like what you're hearing, by all means, please tell your farmer buddies about this podcast. Uh, It's harvest season. We know y'all are in the cab of those tractors for long hours, and we want to give you something to listen to while you're out there uh, picking that five-bell cotton to wrap this season up. Um, We know you can tell your friends that they can find us as well by going to cottongrower.com and searching for Cotton Companion in the search bar. Or you can subscribe to our channel on you on iTunes rather. Uh, if you are listening on iTunes, please go ahead and subscribe and uh, leave us a rating. Let us know what you think of the pod. Uh, make sure as well follow us on social media. Uh, we are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter and on Facebook. You'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Reach out to us there. Let us know what you think about the pod. Let us know what you think about the magazine. And uh, you know we love hearing from y'all. Our next issue is a special issue. It's the October product guide. Uh, it's shaping up nicely. We are uh, presenting a lot of the the great uh, products that are out there for the cotton market for next year, and uh, it should be hitting your mailboxes at some point in uh, early to mid October. So, this podcast is produced by Mark Antonelli, who works at the Mothership Meister Media Worldwide there in Willoughby, Ohio. My name is Beck Barnes, and I'll be back with you in two weeks for the next episode of Cotton Companion. For now, on behalf of my own Cotton Companion, Jim Stedman, we urge you the best of luck during this harvest season, and we hope to see you soon.